Thank you, John. Simple gifts. It's the summer after my freshman year. I went home to Montana and Ken Miedema did an arrangement of that song on an album. And I listened to it that summer and the words, when true simplicity is gained to bow and to bend, we will not be ashamed. To turn, turn will be our delight till by turning, turning we come around right. Those words are completely congruent with the message of the book of Joel. Richard Foster repeats an old Jewish story about a little boy who went to a prophet and said, Prophet, don't you see, you've now been prophesying for 15 years. Things are still the same. Why do you keep on? And the prophet said, don't you know, little boy, I'm not prophesying to change the world, but to prevent the world from changing me. The Lord is God. That's what Joel means. Yahweh is Elohim. And Joel spent his ministry living up to his name, writing in a time of spiritual syncretization and the blending of beliefs. He kept calling the people back to the truth. The Lord is God. Some say he was a post-exilic prophet after the exile that he wrote then. They reason that he never mentions Assyrians or Babylonians or the kings of Judah, the northern kingdom or the high places. The word Israel is used for Judah. The only sanctuary is in Jerusalem in the book of Joel. Sounds right. Or others say he wrote in the time of Amos who mentioned so prominently the day of the Lord as we will see next week. For the purposes of our study, it's really not a great concern. The truth is timeless. Joel wrote so that he wouldn't be changed by the world. But he also wrote for people that he would never see. How was he to know that when Peter would preach so powerfully at Pentecost that he would call forth the words of Joel to describe the outpouring of the Holy Spirit? Or how frequently Paul would come back to his words to say, and everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Joel envisioned a revival of God's people. After the retribution would come a repentance which would work a revival in the hearts of God's people. And Joel envisioned a time when people's hearts would be turned to God. And may God grant that this would be that time. And we would be those people. Would you open your Bibles with me tonight to the book of Joel in the Old Testament right after Hosea where we left off a few weeks ago and we'll read just selected verses. You'll need to stay with me tonight and I'll just read some of these verses with you. Let's stand together as we read God's Word. Joel chapter 1, verse 1, the word of the Lord that came to Joel, son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders. Listen, all you who live in the land. Has anything like this ever happened in your days or in the days of your forefathers? Tell it to your children. Let your children tell it to their children and their children to the next generation. What the locust swarm has left, 
the great locusts have eaten. And what the great locusts have left, the young locusts have eaten. And what the young locusts have left, other locusts have eaten. Wake up, you drunkards, and weep. Wail, all you drinkers of wine. Wail because of the new wine, for it has been snatched from your lips. A nation has invaded my land, powerful and without number. It has the teeth of a lion, the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vines and ruined my fig trees. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it away, leaving their branches white, mourn like a virgin in sackcloth, grieving for the husband of her youth. Grain offerings and drink offerings are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests are in mourning, those who minister before the Lord. The fields are ruined. The ground is dried up. The grain is destroyed. The new wine is dried up. The oil fails. Despair, you farmers. Wail, you vine growers. Grieve for the wheat and the barley because the harvest of the field is destroyed. The vine is dried up and the fig tree is withered. The pomegranate, that the palm and the apple tree and all the trees of the field are dried up. Surely the joy of mankind is withered away. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. The Lord is God. It's what the name Joel means and And unlike Hosea, who told about all the kings who reigned while he preached, Joel doesn't tell us any of that. There's no specific time, and so in some ways it is timeless. But when Peter preached, he hearkened to these words. When Paul wanted to explain salvation, he went back to the book of Joel. And Joel envisions a terrible um, invasion of locusts, one of the worst natural disasters in an agrarian world is when the locusts come. It's like being behind the preacher in the the line when you're having dinner on the grounds. There's nothing left when you get there. And the locusts have come and they have devastated. And Joel uses that natural disaster as an analogy for the judgment of God. Were Joel preaching in our day in Louisiana, he might talk about a hurricane. Or if he preached in Alaska back in the 1960s, he might have talked about an earthquake. But the disaster of the day was the locust who came. And he saw in that picture of the devastating locust, the um, devastating fury of judgment that God would bring through enemy armies who would come upon his people and devastate them. And the retribution and the judgment of God would come upon his people so that they would despair. And he calls them to despair. He calls them to brokenness. Ultimately, he calls them to repentance because for Joel, there is hope. Hope lies in the fact that God's people who have finally lost everything, who have hit the bottom, will ultimately look up and say, okay, God, we can't save ourselves We can't trust in our own armies or our horses or our chariots or our allies. God, you are our only hope. And in that moment, Joel says, God will come through and God will bring redemption 
And God will revive His people and awaken them and pour out His Spirit upon them so that the young men and the young women filled with God's Spirit will do the work of God in the world. He envisions a day when evil really is judged. And when God's people come to love God first and best and awaken and live. This is Joel's message of hope in a world that seemed hopeless. Do you ever feel that you've lost time or lost things or lost opportunities. And we've heard the old, the old line, the bird with the broken wing never flies as high again. And for us, the thought of what we have lost sometimes overwhelms us and we may despair that it will never be restored. But it is Joel who says, God will give you back the years that the locusts have taken God can restore that which has been lost in our lives. And today I want to examine our sorrow in the full light of God's hope because we serve the God who judges sin and calls us to repentance, but we also serve the the God who restores us completely. So first, if I could just trace three themes here. The day of the Lord brings retribution. The people of Joel's day, Amos' day, looked forward to to the day of the Lord, because for them, that would be a day when their enemies would be punished and they would be exalted. We might say that before there were premillennialists or amillennialists or postmillennialists, the Israelites were rather like promillennialists. They they didn't know about the thousand years, but they were ready to reign and to to be rid of their enemies. So they talked about the day of the Lord and And the prophets had the difficult task of interpreting the day of the Lord in a different light of standing up and saying, if the Lord were to return right now, it would not be good news for some of us because we would have to come face to face with a holy God. God's judgment comes through these enemy armies as he describes them in verses 1 to 8, chapter 2, verses 7 to 11. He says they charge like warriors, they scale walls like soldiers, they all march in line, not swerving from their course. They don't jostle each other. Each man marches straight ahead. They plunge through defenses without breaking ranks. They rush upon the city. They run along the wall. They climb into the houses like thieves. They enter through the windows. This is that devastating locust army. I think of that movie Hidalgo, uh, which is uh, one of the few family movies of uh, the last 10 years, I think. And uh, in it, um, the man is racing across the great desert in the Middle East, and he hears a sound behind him. And here comes this swarm of locusts and the the sky goes dark. It gives us just a picture through special effects in Hollywood of what people in those days might have seen. In our home, Melanie kills the flying things. I specialize in spiders. (laughs) My dad was an entomologist, so it sort of runs in the family, but twice since we have moved uh, into the memorial area in two different houses, which is another story, but twice since we've moved in, bees have taken up residence in our home. And on those days when I've walked in and seen the bees coming down out of the light fixtures, I have thought, I'm going to the Ramada Inn. I'm not going to stay here. I, I assure Melanie of our love, and then I say, and as soon as you take care of this, I'll be right back. But there is, after all, um, Troy Burley, who uh, does that kind of thing, who has rescued me on numerous occasions from all kinds of rodents and uh, things like that in recent years. Joel compares these locusts to the armies which will invade. And we may look at this and say with Habakkuk, so God, how do you use bad people to judge 
your people, but we have to understand that even though the evil people may mean it for evil, God can turn it and use it for good. Even the crucifixion in the New Testament, Jesus says, I lay down my life, no one takes it from me, and yet they crucify him, and there are Roman soldiers there. And if we ask, who is to blame? Is it the Jews or the Roman soldiers? Was it God who did it, or was it the people? The answer is yes. God purposed the crucifixion, but all who participated in it are responsible for their own actions as well. God's judgment devastates the land as the locusts consumed the fields, to lose their food was not just to lose that, that year, but all the work that they had put into it, the description of the enemies is fierce. So in, in chapter 2, verse 6, it says, every face turns pale. There is a devastating sense of loss in this judgment of God. Some years ago, I sat at lunch with two men who were discussing an historic high school football game here in Texas between Waco and Nacogdoches. And after the game, the Nacogdoches players went to the Waco players and said, you knew every play. How did you know every time which guy to tackle? How did you know before he even got the ball that he was the one? They said it was easy. When you came out of the huddle, we would see that there were two or three guys who were giggling and joking, and there was one guy who was as white as a sheet. And we just tackled him because he always had the ball. Well, the judgment of God should give us a sense of of pause in our lives. It's not something we can make light of or pretend doesn't exist. I once met a man who had uh, devastated his own family and another man's family and committed adultery. And he said to me, you know, I'm willing to face the punishment for what I've done, but I don't want want to, um, to suffer eternally for this mistake that I've made. It was an interesting kind of statement, and as we talked together, I said, I don't know that we get to choose the way that we suffer, but we are held accountable. Sometimes we may look at people who don't seem to suffer and wonder why when they sin. An anonymous poet puts it this way, you'll pay, the knowledge of your acts will weigh heavier on your mind each day. The more you climb, the more you gain, the more you feel that nagging strain. Success will cower at the threat of retribution, fear will fret, your your peace and bleed you for the debt. Conscience collects from every crook more than the worth of what he took. You only thought you got away, but in the night you'll pay and pay. What we don't want is to pay the price for our own sins. Paul Lawrence Dunbar wrote, this is the price I pay for just one riotous day, years of regret and of grief and sorrow without relief. Suffer it, I will, my friend. Suffer it until the end until the grave shall give relief. Small was the thing I bought, small was the thing at best, small was the debt, I thought. But, oh God, the interest, the interest we pay. God's judgment is powerful. And N.T. Wright wrote, faced with uh, a world in rebellion, a world full of exploitation and wickedness, a good God must be a God of judgment. God must judge sin, and the day of the Lord brings retribution. But the good news is the day of the Lord also calls forth our repentance. So in chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, Joel writes, Put on sackcloth, O priests, and mourn. Wail, you who minister before the altar. Come spend the night in sackcloth, you who minister before my God. For the grain offerings and drink offerings are withheld from the house of your God. Declare a holy fast. 
call a sacred assembly. Summon the elders and all who live in the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. He progressively, successively calls the priests and the elders. In chapter 2, verse 16, he says, gather the people, the elders, the children, and they are to come to this solemn assembly. And what are they to do? They're to weep and repent and cry out to the Lord. Some years ago, not long after I came here, I went over to Memphis for an event called One Day and watched college students who are often uh, who are often disparaged as those who have no heart for the Lord, but these young women and men were falling on their faces before God in this great pasture after a tremendous storm came through. They, there in the, in the mud, they knelt down and they prayed and wept, and we prayed and wept and confessed our sins, and there was this remarkable, solemn assembly of returning to the Lord. It was not frivolous by any measure of that word, but it was freeing to see this young generation call out to God. Joel commands this return to the Lord. And Tozer says, God will take nine steps toward us, but the tenth step we must take. God will incline us to repent, but He cannot repent for us. So Joel says, return to God. Return with all your heart. Don't be half-hearted. How do we return? With fasting, he says, turn away even from food. If that will help you to focus, we come this next Wednesday, I believe, to what is commonly called Ash Wednesday. We don't practice that in any traditional sense, but it seems to me that this is a time for spiritual examination. Every day is a good day for spiritual examination, but for the 40 days leading into Easter, we might focus more fully if we fasted from, from something. One day a dad announced to his family that he was going to fast and pray. His five-year-old daughter Jenny had recently learned that fasting meant not eating. She said, no, you, you can't fast, you'll die. And her dad explained to her that many men and women fasted in Bible times and Jenny thought for a moment, she said, yes, and they all died. You can't fast, but, but he did. We return with weeping and with mourning. How many times do we weep when we see people who are hurting, people who are sick? It is natural for us to respond with with deep sorrow when we see people who are hurting. But I wonder if we weep for those who have sinned. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. A little bit of sin in the membership can cause great problems in the whole membership. Some years ago I met with a man who had made a mess of his life with sin He brought shame and reproach on the name of Jesus Christ. And when he left my office, I wept because he couldn't weep. He had broken his own life. He had broken his family. But he himself was not broken before the Lord. Joel says, rend your heart. Don't just tear your garments. Remember uh, in, in the movie The Passion, the high priest tears his garment in his anger at Jesus. But torn garments, public signs of remorse can be insincere. Joel says, don't tear your clothes for visible effect. Tear your hearts before the Lord. I remember years ago at a large men's gathering in Washington, D.C., I think Larry Bertrand and I were there. We just didn't know each other. But uh, everybody was riding subways. And and in that weekend that we were there, men would get on the subways and they would just begin to sing. Somebody would start Amazing Grace. and, And on this whole subway car, people would begin to sing Amazing Grace. And I remember I was on one of those cars and one man began to sing Holiness, Holiness is what I long for. Holiness, holiness is what I need. And then 
Somebody began to sing brokenness. Brokenness is what I long for. Brokenness is what I need. This is what Joel says. When you and I are are broken by our sin, when we don't take sin lightly, when sin is not a matter of, of joking, but a matter of reality, then when we repent in that way, not coming arrogantly into the audience of God, when we don't try to short-circuit the sorrow that our sin brings, but we experience it fully, there are no shortcuts back to God. But when we repent, that day, Ilian Jones says, is not a fatal day, but a natal day. It's a day in which we are born again into God's life. We return Chapter 2, verses 13 and 14 say, Because of who God is, rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. What will you find if you repent and return? You'll find that the Lord your God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, and He relents from sending calamity. Who knows, He says. God knows. He may turn and have pity and leave behind a blessing. William Cooper who wrote, God works in wondrous ways uh, his marvels to perform. That man, William Cooper, we pronounce it Cowper, they pronounce it Cooper across uh, the ocean. He wrote, man may dismiss compassion from his heart, but God never will. What was it in the mind of the prodigal son that made him think his father would take him back? Whatever that was is what calls us back to God to know that his anger lasts a moment, his favor for a lifetime. This reminds us of Psalm 30, doesn't it? Weeping may endure for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Retribution leads to repentance, and repentance leads inexorably to redemption. So in chapter 2, verses 18 to 32, he talks about all that God will do when we return to Him. And I love this verse in verse 25. I will repay for you the years the locusts have eaten, the great locusts and the young locusts and the other locusts and the locust swarm, my great army that I sent among you. You will have plenty to eat until you are full. One of our young families that waited years and years to have children and then received the news one day that a child was available for them to adopt She said to me that as she was on her way to receive that baby, the word that went through her mind was this verse 25, I will repay you for the years that the locusts have eaten. What an awesome God we serve who can take the brokenness and the emptiness and replace it with His fullness. But I'll tell you about our God who wants to fill us. He cannot fill us if we are already full of ourselves. And only when we come to Him in emptiness and brokenness can God give us. So in chapter 2, verse 19, I'll send you grain and new wine and oil so that you will be satisfied fully. I'll give you enough, He says, verses 23 and 24. Autumn and spring rain so that the threshing floors are full. Verse 26, you'll have plenty to eat until you are full. What does the psalmist say in Psalm 4? You have filled my heart with joy more than their wine when it abounds. The image of fullness is powerful. It's all over the book of Ephesians that we've been reading in 123, that we are His body, the fullness of Him who fills everything in every way. In 319, that you may be filled, Paul prays, to the measure of all the fullness of God. Colossians 2.10, you've been given fullness in Him. Will we allow God to fill us? And how can people whose lives have been empty ever be full again? 
Oh, you have to know our God like Joel did. The Lord is God. He's not writing about Baal or as we pronounce it, Baal. He's writing about Yahweh like the Orthodox Russian priest, John of Kronstadt, who ran to the people in his culture who were drunken with wine and would pick them up from the gutter despising even the smell of the alcohol on them, he would embrace them and say, your brokenness does not define you. You are the one in whom Christ dwells. You were meant to house the fullness of God. This is evangelist. When people like us, who know what it is to be empty, are filled with all the fullness of God, then we see the people who are empty and trying to fill their lives in other ways in a different light. And with the compassion of our God, we recognize that our God is the God who reaches out to us, who protects us, chapter 2, verse 20 says, who restores us, chapter 2, verse 25 says, this is our God who restores completely. Swindoll tells in his book, Quest for Character, how by sovereign grace, God can bring good out of our failures. He references J. Stuart Holden and his story about an old Scottish mansion that was, um, that was in uh, Scotland and the walls of one room were filled with sketches made by distinguished artists. They had made those sketches literally on the walls of the room. But the way it started was somebody spilled a pitcher of water on that wall and it made a a great stain. And Lord Landseer, a noted artist who was a guest in that house, one day when the family went out to the moors, he stayed behind. And with a few masterful strokes of a piece of charcoal, that ugly spot became the outline of a beautiful waterfall bordered by trees and wildlife. He turned that disfigured wall into one of his most successful depictions of Highland life and other artists came and drew on that wall as well. It became famous. This is God's power. He will restore. The only way to overturn a painful past is to turn it into a powerful future. And God will waste nothing. So who is that person for whom you're praying? That one perhaps upon whom others have given up. I wonder what God might do with that person's life. He will waste nothing. John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, once said, I have never despaired for any man since God saved me. Well, if God could save us, He can save others. We don't know what our lives might have been apart from grace. So what if God's grace broke through into the lives of that person? I'll tell you what the Lord is teaching me. I don't have the right to give up on somebody that God has not given up on. And God has not given up on anybody you and I know. And so we continue to pray and continue to love and continue to trust that God will revive, that as he promises in chapter 2, verses 28 to 32, and afterward I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Your men and your women. Age is not a problem, whether old or young. You're not too young for God to use you. You're not too old for God to use you. God will use you, even on my servants, both men and women. He says that twice, doesn't he? I will pour out my spirit in those days. God says, I will, I will pour out my spirit. It's the sovereign work of God to revive his people. Nathaniel Hawthorne described happiness as a butterfly, which if you pursue it is always just beyond your grasp, but which if you sit down quietly may actually light on your shoulder. And it's like that with the spirit of God. 
He is not seized, but he is received. And here the male and female, young and old, become servants of the Most High God. Your sons and your daughters. Remember in the book of Acts, Philip has four daughters who prophesy. Billy Graham calls his daughter Anne the best preacher in the family. If you've heard her, you'll, you'll have to be inclined to agree, I, I think. I saw it in Shannon Rutherford, who uh, was one, one of my students at HBU. I thought about Mong Tiak last week when, when her husband Tong Loon was up there baptizing all of those people in the baptistry, and Mong has been instrumental. Do you know, do you know before they started that Burmese church, there were just about 300 Burmese in the city. And before they started that Burmese church, even though the, the Burmese who are in our city are not a predominantly Christian, many are, are Muslim, many are Buddhist, but, but every Burmese baby born in this city, Mong Tiak, would go and they would have a party for that child and bless that child. And that became the core of, of, a, of a movement of God. So they found a church with 20 or 30, 30 people, about 10% of the Burmese in our city, and there's this influx, and now on any Sunday, they may have 150, they may have 200. One Sunday, I think they had 225 Burmese gathered together, and it came not just through the ministry of Tong, but also through the ministry of Mong. You just need to know, you need to know this couple in our church, you need to know her, that she has an earned doctorate, that she's a, a chaplain, one of the lead chaplains down in the medical center, and and God uses her mightily. But while her husband was baptizing those people last Sunday night, she made it her mission to love a little baby named Stephanus so that Stephanus' mother could provide the special music. And you may have been watching the, the baptisms, but I looked over and I saw Mong loving that little girl or that little boy. And it occurred to me that God pours out His Spirit on all flesh on men and on women. God calls all of us together to minister and use the spiritual gifts. And it's not for you or for me to tell the Spirit of God how to work in the life of another person. But I tell you, when you see God working in that Burmese church, understand it's not just Aquila. There's also a Priscilla. God's working through both of them. And God's working in this place and in our lives. And He can pour out His Spirit equally on our sons and on our daughters. And this is the great miracle. When he does, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. In verses 1 to 16 of chapter 3, he talks about the judgment of God. He calls them to the valley of Jehoshaphat, which means God judges. The valley of God judges. We may look at it and say, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, but it's not our decision. It's us coming to hear God's decision. It's God pronouncing His judgment on the sinfulness of the world. And he, he comes to the conclusion, God is like a lion who roars from Zion. He is the lion from Zion. And He says you can turn your plowshares into swords. Now, now Isaiah said turn the, the swords into plowshares, but... Joel says, you can turn your farming implements into swords and do battle against God, but you are not going to win that battle because God is greater still. Instead of fighting against God, we should run to Him for refuge. He says, God will receive us as refugees. We love the idea of God as a refuge. That's one of my favorite words in the English language. It comes from the word fugo, um, which means to flee. 
And a refuge is a place to which we flee. We love the word refuge, but we struggle with the thought that we are refugees. But if you and I could admit tonight that we are refugees, God would be our refuge. Perhaps these words from author and pastor Frederick Buechner can offer us a bit of comfort because they acknowledge both the reality of the coming judgment and the grace-filled love of the judge. This is what he says. The New Testament proclaims that at some unforeseeable time in the future, God will ring down the final curtain on history. That, that's, that's what Joel says. He says, Judah will be inhabited forever in Jerusalem through all generations. Their blood guilt, which I have not pardoned, I will pardon. The Lord dwells in Zion. There will come a day when the final curtain of history descends. There will come a day on which all our days and all the judgments upon us and all our judgments upon each other will themselves be judged. And the judge, the New Testament tells us, will be Christ. In other words... Take comfort in this, people. In other words, the one who judges us most finally is the same one who loves us most fully. Doesn't that give you hope? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your amazing love and mercy and grace. We do not discount your wrath against sin But tonight, Father, we plead the blood of Jesus Christ over our lives, over our loved ones. We acknowledge, Lord, that we cannot save ourselves. There's no sense in trying to fight against you, but tonight help us to flee to you, Lord. As refugees, we run to you, our refuge, believing that you who will finally judge us are the same one who loves us most fully. So why would we fear you? We reverence you, we respect you, but why would we fear the one who gave up his own life for our sins? So help us to come to you so that when true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend, we will not be ashamed. To turn, turn will be our delight. Lord, help us by turning, turning, to come around right. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.